Hello, everyone. Welcome to Scholars Beyond the Tower, conversations from our fields. We're all involved in something, and our work matters. I'm Erin. And I'm Caroline. everyone and welcome to 2021. It has been a extremely long 2020. Um, as you know, you can see we have recorded this uh, welcome to 2021 on the very last day of January of 2021. Because <laughs> yeah, and like what a January it was. I feel like every single week we were living through a major historical event. And it's been a long time since Caroline and I actually sat down and recorded. Uh, We took a bit of a holiday break there. Lots of fun stuff. We both had, you know, fall, winter birthdays. I got engaged. We got a new president. What else has happened? (laughs) Um, Let's see. I got a new microphone. Um, I hope that the quality of the uh, new interviews will be a little bit better. And by quality, I mean my sound quality before I was using just, you know, an old pair of Apple headphones that I had and my last iPhone I bought in um, 2015. So these have seen better days. (laughs) We've also had the curse of the Wednesdays recently. Um, We're living through pretty much like a textbook level event every Wednesday this month. So hopefully, you know, February is a little calmer. Yeah, it's been kind of nuts. But we did just want to say it's been a few months since we sat down and recorded with Andrew. And boy, do we have an amazing episode for you guys today. It's November 8th, and we're sitting down to chat with Andrew David Rimby. Andrew Rimby is a PhD candidate in the English department at Stony Brook University. He researches 19th century American and Victorian literature from a queer transatlantic perspective. He is the 2019 inaugural recipient of the Giuliano Global Fellowship, which allowed him to go to the British Library to look at the Lady Eccles Oscar Wilde collection. He is a 2019-2020 Public Humanities Fellow, 2019 Stony Brook Graduate Fellow in the Arts, Humanities, and Lettered Social Sciences, Recently, he was on the organizing committee for International Whitman Week, IWW, which was held at NYU in May 2019. At Stony Brook, he was on the organizing committee for the May 3rd Whitman Bicentennial Symposium, where he spoke about Whitman's homoerotic poetry. He recently created The Ivory Tower Boiler Room, a podcast that he co-authors and co-anchors with Adam Katz to discuss navigating academia during the pandemic. Andrew is also a queer activist who has advocated for equal access for LGBTQ students at Stony Brook. And I'll say as an editorial note, Andrew is a dear friend of of mine. So Andrew, to kick us off, how do you drink your coffee? I love this question. Uh, (laughs) Especially as, and I have to be so forthright, I'm such an admirer of your podcast. So I always love this opening question. And it's complicated. Um, and I know that sounds like a dating profile, but it really depends on how I've made my coffee. So like, say I've made it in the pot. Um, usually it always has to have almond milk, usually a flavor. And my flavor of choice currently is tiramisu, which sounds very fancy, Ooh. but I love getting different coffee syrups since I haven't gone as much back to coffee shops. So 
I had to buy coffee creamer today, but there was someone standing like directly in front of all of the coffee creamers and he didn't seem to want to move and, you know, wearing quarantine. So <laughs> I kind of just reached for the closest one and went on my way. So I'll be drinking amaretto coffee for a while. I, the flavor really does. Sometimes even psychologically, I think, I believe it'll set me up for the day depending on the flavor I drink, but Absolutely. Like I found the pumpkin spice coffee creamer to be a really comforting, you know, warming fall, probably memory association more mm -hmm. so than just the coffee I'm actually drinking. Um, but yeah, I think it, you know, we kind of reach for different things depending on our moods and they affect us in different ways. I love coffee. So I'm always drinking coffee, uh, mostly iced coffee usually too. Because I know some people who will like take the hot coffee and then just pour it all over the ice. But once it's watered down that way, I just have a hard time in <laughs> digesting the flavor. So yeah, I have to, I usually do a certain um, uh, process where the extra coffee I just put in a to-go cup and then I uh, cool it for the night. So I used to be super into iced coffee. And <laughs> what I would do is I would freeze leftover coffee in like ice oh, cube wow. trays because then as your iced coffee, like as the ice cubes in your iced coffee start to melt, it oh, doesn't get Lord. super watered down. Look into that. <laughs> Thank you, Erin. And that's also called planning ahead. Which <laughs> I'm not the best at that most days, but I do have some days. <laughs> well, I'm going to take that advice. So thank you. Andrew, you are a PhD candidate and an activist and you, um, and you run your own podcast. What was your journey like to um, to where you are now? Interesting. Well, I'm just going to go to the passion of what drew me to the PhD program, which I think speaks to where I am now at the end of my journey of the dissertation, which actually parallels a lot of why I went into academia. So I feel like I've now bookended my experience and I've returned back to my roots and the reason I say that is because I first went into the PhD program because I was so enamored that you could have LGBTQ representation in literature and media, and that you could apply theories to try to dissect and understand these queer representations and characters. And that's why I really wanted to go into the PhD program, because I knew for myself to live my own authentic queer life and I identify as gay and my, I'll say my pronouns are he, him, his, to be authentic to myself. And if I was going to go into teaching, I needed to really look into this research of queer studies. And for some interesting reason, I feel that everything that I've been doing now with projects speaks to that first passion. It hasn't gone away. And I actually feel like I've it feels so nice to have returned back to the root of the passion. I think it was Bell Hooks who said that, you know, a lot of education and and learning is about passion and you can't take away passion or you can't assume that passion isn't part of the equation when you're teaching or learning or interacting with people because that's just simply not the case. And I really, I always love it when people talk about how, like, how they're passionate about something. And the passion is, like, really comes through when you talk about your work. For me, what drew me to literature as a child, even, was the thrill of the library. 
So I'm a big advocate for public libraries and their necessity in communities, because I really do feel that the way to educate yourself with self-education has to happen from access to a well-funded library to gain all different representations of narratives. And that's what I was really drawn to as a child were all these stories. So what did you like to read? You know, when you were like 10 or 12 years old, what was like your favorite book or your favorite genre? I know end of elementary into middle school, I had a real turning point of my reading. And I should say that I owe a lot of it to my mother who would take me to the library once a week, starting at the age of three, probably. And I would make my way all around the children's section, and I always associate the library as an event and a time to just dig in to a new story. So when I was at the end of elementary school, I, I had made my way through, I think I read The Boxcar Children because it was really available in the elementary school library, and um, The Hardy Boys and some Nancy Drew. I really like Nancy Drew more than The Hardy Boys, though, um, with the detective skill she has. And I then really turned to horror and I became horror obsessed in middle school. And it really was Stephen King's Carrie that I read in seventh grade. And I then went on a journey with Stephen King. Um, And it spoke a lot to, I was getting bullied very heavily in middle school. And I think for me, horror became an outlet to see the outsider. I always go back to Carrie by Stephen King because that was the Stephen King novel I read in seventh grade. And because I was feeling so isolated with the bullying happening to me, it was a cathartic experience to identify with Carrie, but also see that bullying, if not addressed properly, can lead to really disastrous results. Yeah, I think that's so powerful. Um, I went through a Stephen King phase too. And, you know, I didn't get to read Carrie, but listening to you talk about it, I definitely have to check it out. You know, Erin, when you have those books you always want to return to, you're like, I'm going to yeah. read that again, or <laughs> I need to read that. But I feel like it's a book, I see it on my shelf all the time, and even seeing it gives me a certain comfort of absolutely knowing that time and place where I was. I 100% agree with that point. I'm, you know, I'm thinking about the books on my shelf, and I would say the one that I find myself turning back to every time I need that that familiar comfort is probably the historian and that one's Elizabeth Kostova and it you know it was this really fascinating book and I felt like it brought together so many different types of books for me you know it's it's I don't know if you've read it but it starts off with this girl sort of telling the story about you know her mother um, is gone absent from her life they think she died and she's living with her father but he's this grief-stricken man And then he disappears and she ends up digging into her father's research. And it's really the story of how he met her mother. There's this element of like Eastern European folklore that comes so strongly into the book and really takes control of the story. So there are vampires, but this book was like a nesting doll of stories. You know, you end up going through so many different layers that it it was really captivating to me. 
and the way it was written was, you know, I really got sucked in. And it's it's a fairly long book, too. So it's the sort of one where, um, you know, if you're ever on a really long plane ride or something like that, it's a good pick. I just love that metaphor, a nesting doll of stories. <laughs> um, it's beautiful and poetic. And also, yeah, I convey to my students that reading is so powerful. The reading experience is really powerful. And I think that's, I always start with those gut feelings and I actually call it as an assignment, first impressions. Okay. And I have my students respond subjectively, you know, did you like it? Did you not like this text? But why? Like what exactly about the text are you most drawn to or what did mm -hmm. you struggle with? And I feel once they know that they have a say personally to it, then I can open it up to the theory. Yeah. But the other way doesn't work as well to start with the theory and then try to say, well, okay, so what exactly do you think? Because they get bogged down with the jargon usually. And I think that's, you know, the way that we should do theory. I was talking to someone, um, another organizer who was like, yeah, I've been uh, reading this theory. And I was like, look, and I, I was like a little salty about grad school that day. I was like, look, you don't need theory. Um, like you really don't. Ooh. Just, just talk to people, man. Um, because whatever is, is being said in theory, people are saying right now. And, and just listen to, just talk to people, ask questions and listen. And, and you'll get, like, you'll get to the theory. There might be like a big system theory to just to, you know, Mm -hmm. scaffold this and, and that there's scholarship tacked onto it but but like people know what's happening and they know what they like and what they don't like and they can just describe it so if you start there Andrew I I just really like the way that you do it because um it's it's well, about creating knowledge not about um you know proving that you're the smartest or that you've memorized the most big words no and that's not our role as educators and I don't think that's our role to just drop names and drop terms. I mean, it's great. Of course. Yeah. Giving agency to the students. Again, it goes back to the brilliant pedagogical advice of bell hooks in teaching to transgress, which I'm so glad you brought bell hooks up because I feel Caroline, we're back in that moment of what bell hooks says about liberatory education, which is it has to come from the personal testimony of both the instructor and the students, but I know some instructors, they'll give all the burden of the personal testimony to their students, but they never make themselves vulnerable as the instructor. And your students then are not going to be as comfortable with you. And I'm not saying disclose your whole personal Rolodex. <laughs> I, no, I have boundaries. Yeah. I mean, people really confuse that. They're like, oh, well, I don't want my students to I don't know, know my life or know my problems. And I'm like, that's not, that's not it at all. It's just mm -hmm. saying, you know, look, this text that we're about to tackle is really hard to tackle. But, um, but, you know, I, I started from not knowing the text and now I can teach the text. So it's not impossible. And I believe in you and we'll get it done. Exactly. And even, even just oh, that man. little, like, bit of commentary on something yeah it's so important that you voiced it too and you make it you're transparent about your goals and if anything we learn this over time i think so now this is my seventh year in the phd program 
and I've been teaching now for five years. Um, I learned that if I tried to adhere too much to a certain prescribed script of a lesson plan, that if I didn't get to something, I would be very disappointed. But then I realized the more I was open about, okay, well, I've prepped all of this material that I want the students to discuss, but I want them to be prepared with questions that they've already thought about, that it's okay if it goes into a different direction because the students are then leading the discussion. And I do really believe in a student-centered, going back to Socrates, method. The Socratic method is the method that I think really allows for the most knowledge to be absorbed. So I know we talk a lot about, you know, teaching and learning in this, you know, in this conversation, also like in this podcast in general. But one of the things that we also try to show is that like these journeys that we have as scholars, as people, and as learners are um, not always linear. Um, So on that note, I guess, what is, because you like, and because you like horror, so what, what have some of like the twists or turns or like unexpected antagonists or secret evil twins, and now I'm getting into soap operas, but um, what if some, (laughs) do you have one of those like twists or turns that you can share with us? So what's my days of our lives storyline, narrative? (laughs) Um, Or, or like a, just like simple, like horror narrative. Like it wasn't what we thought the house was haunted I love it because I got so obsessed with the haunting of Hill House on Netflix. Oh my God. Yes. Oh my gosh. (laughs) So the haunting of Hill House, what I really love about the series, and I actually set up a Halloween book club with some of my students who are really interested in like an outside book club virtually, is it speaks so well to grief and mourning. And I feel especially now during the pandemic. It's been hard to find public spaces to grieve. There's something about this horror element that a lot of the horror is really working through our own struggles. So going back to your point, Caroline, about my own journey and are there twists, are there turns, my twist and turn has been that I was trying to impress the wrong people and I wasn't being as authentic as I could have been right when I got into the program. I think that I was getting really absorbed into a certain competitive element of the PhD program. And now that I look back, I realize that I've become so comfortable not not having to engage in energy that is self-defeating. And I I think a lot of graduate students probably feel this way. Um, It's that um, imposter syndrome that's always talked about. But I think my imposter syndrome wasn't necessarily that I didn't deserve to be in a PhD program. I think it was that I was trying to put myself in competition with everyone around me in the cohort. But I realized that what's really freeing is a lot of those in my own cohort, we've all gone on our own pathways and journeys. And I think that's the way forward in grad school. The way forward is that there's more independence and agency in these programs. It's really worth thinking about what what does independence or agency look like in graduate training? Mm-hmm. Um, and what are the barriers to it? You know, the first episode of Grey's Anatomy, when Richard so. Weber takes all the interns into an OR and he says, 
this number of you will drop out, this number of you will be asked to leave, this number of you will switch specialties, look around you, this is your comp, like these are your competitors, this is your starting line. You have this funding for four years, but no one really tells you that from day one you should be looking for grants and stuff because it's not going to take you four years, it's not even going to take you five years, it's going to take you seven to ten years to do this. So what does like agency or independence mean in a graduate program when so often power and who has power and who is connected to power is almost um, like almost like a taboo to talk about? No, exactly, Karen. Exactly. It, it's it's the elephant in the room, power and privilege. I got into really wanting to create the ivory tower boiler room because i noticed that we all were having these narratives during the pandemic of we really were being thrown a new map to try to analyze and figure out which territory we were in now are are we in narnia are we i don't know in stephen king's main universe like i didn't know where i was oriented and because I saw so many of us were just trying to figure out, some are really faced with hard financial difficulties. And that's not addressed a lot. I think the narrative sometimes is because you are studying what you're so passionate about, you'll be faced with these inequalities or inequities, but you'll have to figure out how to get by within these six, seven, eight, how many years it takes you. And then I think the narrative that doesn't get told a lot is how many other outside jobs do graduate students have? Because mm -hmm. they are funding themselves some way to get that coffee or to just have a shelter in place. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and really, like, yeah. one of the things that, that was really talked a lot about in my husband's grad program, but not mine, was that every year you're in graduate school is a year that you are really under earning. So you're not able to save, you're not in a pension, you're not saving in a 401k. Mm -hmm. So not only are you like making peanuts, but you're falling further and further and further behind every year that you're here. I hate to say this to anyone who might be listening, who does think that there is no inequalities in the grad school system which the listeners probably here are in that audience group, but I'll say it anyway, which is some of us have more privileges than others. Some of us have families who fund our studies. And some of us, you start, I started to realize that privilege and academia has been existing since academia first started. And that many in PhD programs have always been upper middle class or upper class academics. And what doesn't get talked about a lot is how do the working class grad students get by? Because I, re I rarely see their narratives described. We're mm -hmm. talking about a really good episode of working people that pod where they talked about working class academics. Oh, that's good. So I want to plug that. Um, and Maximilian Alvarez is a just oh, like good. fantastic yeah. human being who runs that podcast. And I encourage everyone to listen to it. Um, and just, yeah, Maximilian is just so incredibly generous intellectually and, um, and as an activist. So definitely um, give working people a listen. 
Oh, I love it. Thank you, Caroline. Uh, signal yeah. boosting. I took always. that from uh, Stephanie Von Vesudo, who's a really yes, great always got to sexuality studies. Yeah, yeah. Uh, she loves using. So I borrowed that phrase from her, and I think that's also something I just did there, Caroline. Is an element that I try to remind myself to always give credit to where I'm borrowing knowledge from, because we're a community. We should be collaborators. That's why I don't see myself as isol an isolated scholar because I'm not, I communicate with so many different networks and, you know, maybe this especially speaks to the activist circle that I really frequent, which uh, tends to be centered in progressive policies. But even when it comes to LGBTQ studies and when you were talking about the on the ground energy, um, I was at a peace rally today and I had a, rainbow flag and just feeling that energy and having conversations with those who are outside of academics, um, academia, I should say, and just listening to narratives and realizing that when people feel seen and they feel represented, that's important. And the ivory tower isn't the only one producing that knowledge. If anything, I think the ivory tower is responding to the knowledge analyzing what's happening but they're not the ones who are all producing the energy of different activist groups or like there really is a bridge that i think has not been built maybe there is a time in history where there was such a clear connection between the public and the university but i feel like the bridge has I think about that metaphor of a bridge, you know, the ones where they uh, split and like boats have to pass by under them. Oh yeah, drawbridge. Yeah, drawbridge, thank you. And I really feel like we can't go to a time, we can't continue for the university to continue to self-isolate itself because it's not working. No, it's, it's not working at all. And I, I think that there are the dangers of presenting an, an academia or a scholarship that is objective or detached or somehow not rooted in like everyday, everyday things hmm. is that you become much more vulnerable as a scholar, as an institution to like really virulent strains of anti-intellectualism, which feed fascism and authoritarianism like this isn't news mm -hmm. but yet mm -hmm. when when as scholars we we want to do engaged work it becomes something that is like harder to pass off as as real scholarship mm -hmm. which is you know counter counterproductive for the academy so mm -hmm. it's a big it's a big ship it's going to turn real slow but i hope that it is turning I think it's turning because the capitalist bureaucratic university system cannot function itself anymore. It can't nourish itself. And the public, like you said, they're really distrusting of what universities are producing in America, which, yeah, we have to examine why does this anti-intellectualism exist? But I think a lot of it is because there's been a lot of ego power at the university. And 
I do see a dismantling of ego-centered learning. When I say ego-centered, I mean a an educator, a scholar who they think that they're above everyone else who studies their subject, that they don't listen to feedback from their students, they don't engage their students and treat their students as the students um, creating their own knowledge. And that there may also, and I, and I don't think this is the majority, I should preface this too. In my experience and from what I've read, the majority of academics don't engage in this kind of behavior. But we all know of a few academics who make a name for themselves by seeing themselves as a celebrity, which I don't think it's an issue if you're a high profile at all. There's no issue with being a high profile scholar. I just always go back to what are your ethics and your morals for how you're interacting with everyone. And I feel like there have been whole disciplines that became kind of like stand-ins for like, what is a university professor? Hmm. We think about like the discipline of, um, of archaeology, the discipline of anthropology, right? And then that got yeah. kind of like pulled into like sociology or um, political science, right? Like those disciplines mm-hmm. where it became, where like our cultural test- touchstones for people in those disciplines were like Indiana Jones mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. Um, that guy in those Dan Brown novels who's who's always trying to like find oh the cult and the that became like the vision of the professor mm. in the 20th century right like and if you know like these were big cultural artifacts and we have to reckon with them as scholars mm. um and then on top of that it, there was just like from the 80s on this relentless attack on higher ed that's something that I think we should be thinking about too like what are the images of the professor what is the how has the university changed in the 20th century Um, because it is it's all about power and who has power and who is able to kind of move through unseen or undetected yeah well and This is so important because I want to be really clear that I have to recognize that I'm a white man who has been able to have funding for six years, which isn't common for all PhD programs, and that I also am lucky enough to have a family that can help support me. So... If I look back to the Victorian period of those who went to Oxford, and because I work on Oscar Wilde, he's a candidate mm-hmm. um, for that, and I try not to do too much mirroring of myself with Whitman and Oscar Wilde because <laughs> it becomes a solipsistic, narcissistic almost study, and I'm nervous. But um, I would have been able to, I would have been able to continue going to these universities, and. Even though I'm very open about my sexuality, I still recognize that I'm nervous and anxious, and I don't think this is what will happen. I really don't want there to be 
a closing off of those who get access to the university. And it becomes a group of privileged white academics. Like that is a concern of mine. I think if you have certain privileges in academia, you can use your voice in really innovative ways. And I think that's something I'm now coming to terms with about how far can I advocate for graduate students? And I realized that the fear of retribution I thought might have been there actually was more of an anxious thought that I had about speaking out and speaking up for those who are nervous to really confront the system head on. There's ways we can speak out that we may not even know. Like, I'll give a concrete example. During this uncertainty with the pandemic and funding and some graduate students, they were very cautious and concerned about where a source of income would come for them, especially in terms of just paying the rent and getting food from grocery stores. And because we are so isolated and most of us are working from home, some don't live near others from the program. I'm lucky that I live near a lot of other people because because I still live near Stony Brook. But those I knew who live in the city had a very different experience. And because I knew that they were faced with these challenges, I kept voicing to the department heads that have they have people been reaching out to them from the faculty? I wasn't getting an answer right away, but I kept asking and persisting, and persistence is important. But then eventually, well, and we have an amazing graduate coordinator. Uh, oh my gosh, is, yes, you do. Her name is Teresa. So I'll say her name because Teresa is such a special and on the ground person. So thank you, Teresa. Um, and because of Teresa and because I would voice these concerns to Teresa, there was um, an eventual fund that was established for the graduate students. But again, this is something that is a department by department policy. This isn't something that the whole university addresses. So I realized it does really take the graduate students to voice these concerns within their department for maybe a policy to be implemented. And, um, and I know now that I've started, I'm not stopping. It's, it's hard for me, and maybe it's my personality, but I feel once I see something magnified, I'm not able to unsay it anymore. What is drawing you to this discussion about Whitman and Wilde? I'll read two quotes, one from Walt Whitman and one from Oscar Wilde that I think will make more sense of why I've put these figures together. So Walt Whitman has this quote that I, especially now, has given me a lot of love and light and optimism. So it's keep your face always toward the sunshine and shadows will fall behind you. So this constant persistence of seeing the good in humanity. Um, Okay, so we'll hold that. (laughs) And then Oscar Wilde's tone is really apparent in this quote, which is some cause happiness wherever they go, others whenever they go. And his witty style there of when people are dead, if people gain happiness from someone who's dead, well, what does that say about you as a person? And 
I just love these, you would think these are very two conflicting personalities, but the reason I really got into Whitman and Wilde is first I really, I had become really passionate about Walt Whitman's poetry as an undergrad because I had a course, an American Lit course, and we spent a lot of time on Song of Myself and other Whitman poems. And there's so much sensual imagery in Song of Myself, which is from 1855. So it's from his first edition of Leaves of Grass. And a lot about how does nature and space affect your personality and how you walk day to day where you're interacting with other things. So when I entered the PhD program, I already had Whitman in my mind. I hadn't known a lot about Oscar Wilde, except that he was extremely sardonic and punny and mocked himself for performative pleasure. But when I read the picture of Dorian Gray and I found out that it had this gothic queer imagery, which again, we're back to horror and we're back to the queer representation. So this fits, (laughs) that novel really marries these ideas together. I then found out that Oscar Wilde met Whitman twice when he came to America on this lecture tour because he was trying to describe the art of um, beauty and to an American audience because Gilbert and Sullivan, the um, operetta composers, it was from a lesser known operetta that was all about art for art's sake and aestheticism, which if you don't know, aestheticism means basically the philosophy of beauty, (laughs) to water that down. And they sent Oscar Wilde because they thought, well, we need someone to explain the art of beauty to the American audience. And Oscar Wilde threw himself at Gilbert and Sullivan and used it as not a chance to talk about the art of beauty, but as a way to promote his not yet written work that he wanted to gain a sense of who his audience was. And now they knew who his name was. So he went on a promotion tour that no one had signed him up for. And the most academic thing I've ever heard of. Yeah. (laughs) It's someone who operates under ego. Definitely Oscar Wilde. Um, And he decided that he needed to see Walt Whitman who he had been reading since he was a child. His mother had a copy of the American edition of Leaves of Grass. He decided to visit Whitman and Camden when he went to Philadelphia to do his lecture and just a hop, skip, jump away across the Delaware River. And they had a time that was covered by all these journalists. It became a toast of the town moment. A poem was written about it, trying to explain their erotic desire towards each other. And this is in the 1880s, 1882. Um, And this is what opens up my dissertation. So I start with this history. And then I go into, well, what are the, how does Whitman look into queer representation in his literature? And how might it differ from Oscar Wilde? Um... And what does that say about how queer desire is being reflected in American literature compared to Victorian literature? And there is an intersection there, but um, it really all centers on the meeting of these minds and that Oscar Wilde, in my argument, 
isn't just drawn to Whitman because of you know, his nicely uh, phrased poetry, which could be made as a case, and because he's a fan of Whitman, but it's also because he hasn't yet written his most queer text, which is The Picture of Dorian Gray. I argue that he actually looks to Whitman as a queer role model, as a writer, because Whitman's about to die. Now, this just took a very morbid tone, but Whitman does die in 1892, so um, he only has 10 years left. So I think Wilde knows Whitman's nearing is the end of his life. This is his last opportunity to seek out a mentor. And then he responds by writing Dorian Gray, which is like really fascinating to think about in like in light of what you've just laid out for us is that No Wild was in search of a in search of a mentor, in search of something, and then maybe finds it, you know, and then proceeds to write Dorian Gray, which is you know, it's been a while, but there's a portrait in the attic that's aging and aging and aging. Mm-hmm. Um, but the the person will not age, will not die, um, as long as they don't look at that. That so as long as you don't see yourself, which is very interesting to me to think about that. Um, it's getting late, man. <laughs> I don't think anyone has slept at all in the last four years. Um, <laughs> so but yeah, no, yeah, yeah. That, it, it's a, and again, it all goes like even the moral of and I. There isn't just one moral always in a narrative, but the picture of Dorian Gray. What I always take away from it is exactly what you said. There is this anxiety about the aging, but also Dorian is being told who he is by these two aristocratic men, one who uses him as the muse to create the portrait, so one's a painter, and the other is an academic who's an aristocrat, and he's saying to Dorian, well, you're so beautiful, everyone only sees you as this beauty symbol, and that's why they respond to you so well, so that's all you have, really. So he's never given this agency, so I actually really think it's... It's not that Dorian is a narcissistic person. It's that he's being molded and tried to be forced into these certain categories of... And it's very interesting because you you usually don't see it with men, with young men being told that they're the most beautiful person and that's why everyone responds to you, um, right? This is a familiar narrative with women mm-hmm. and the patriarchy of course, and the oppression from it. But yeah, it's it's such an interesting... I recommend everyone should read The Picture of Dorian Gray because it is just a philosophical novel that takes turns and twists. Talk about really interesting Gothic narrative. But one where Dorian decides to use what he's been told is his asset as a tool against other people. So he learns the strategy of manipulating people with his beauty. I think it's a lesson of why it's so important to have authenticity over your own life and agency. Agency is, um, and to be able to tell your own story and have your own desire that speaks to yourself and isn't being forced on you by external observers. What does that say about like, the way that we expect people or the way that we 
think about introspection, right? Like if you think, if you are introspective or you think about yourself or you want to reflect using, you know, like using a portrait or a mirror or an image of yourself, mm-hmm. what does that say? And I think that goes, that's a line that you can draw all the way back to like the myth of narcissus. Exactly. Well, and that's, you got to the heart of it. And I know your work so well. And you I know my work, but it also... I think is why I've turned to ancient Greek myth stories and especially Narcissus. The way I approach Whitman, Walt Whitman and Oscar Wilde, with Whitman, I really take a look at how his speaker and his poetry engages in what I theorize. Um, and I'm finishing this work right now, so it's really fresh in my head, but as cruising. So cruising in a queer context, usually as if oh, I could say so people. for you to explain cruising. No, I'll, oh, don't worry. I'll start <laughs> it. Um, usually it's applied to gay men, but I'm not saying it can't exist with others who are outside of that orientation. But from the gay male cruising culture, which really starts to be written a lot about in the 70s, 80s, um, a lot in Times Square. There's a really good book called Time, um, Times Square Red, Times Square Blue by Samuel Delaney, who I take a lot of this um, thought from. And it's this where these public spaces, so think of Times Square, also have private spaces like um, an adult movie theater or even a bar um, where these spaces meet and you're looking at different bodies with usually the intention of taking someone to bed. Um, And I try to do that as poetic as I could. Uh, But cruising is also a definition that means, and we use it all the time, cruising on the highway, or I'm going on a cruise, that it really, from the research I found, it goes back to the 1600s, and it does have this um, nautical term the nautical terminology is what founded this idea of cruising, which is to just meander around and go on a journey. And that is what's going on with these male experiences. There is no definite, I'm going to be with X, Y, or Z, or this is going to happen in this moment. It is um, ambiguous. And I use that as a way to read Whitman's queerness in his poetry, because a lot of Whitman scholars ones that I've positioned myself in their conversation, because of course I'm indebted to all the Whitman scholars and wild scholars who've thought about queerness and any erotic desire centered around um, homoeroticism. But a lot of scholarship with Whitman, more so than wild, interestingly, But with Whitman, and I think it's because Whitman is such an autobiographical poet, and I always tell my students, be careful, just because he's seducing you in his poetry doesn't mean he is the speaker of his poem, because he's not. He's creating a persona. And because of this seduction, a lot of scholars have started, they started to really write that Whitman is gay, or he's homosexual, or so I started to find out a lot of this research it offers all of these ambiguities about um, how bodies interact with each other in 
erotic ways, but then they usually land on, on a sexual orientation. So my work does not land on an orientation. I'm just delving in the messiness of the gray area. And it's also because the concept of homosexuality does not come into the vernacular and is does not enter into any literature until the 1870s to the 1880s. Um, so I'm trying to be as honest as possible with the history. That's really fascinating. So on that note, though, if you had unlimited funding and time and resources and support, Andrew, what would you do with that? Hmm. I think if I had, well, unlimited time, (laughs) that sounds lovely, Um, and unlimited funding. I mean, both hand in hand, you've made the ideal marriage. I mean, I try. You, yeah, yeah. And it's kind of like an open. It's like an open marriage situation, and I, I don't know where I would go with that metaphor. I'm gonna stop. So, um, I think with ideal time and funding, it would lessen a burden of, you know, that I have to only really exist in one lane of the projects that I'm doing like that. I really could be very free um, with, especially with time. I really, as a teacher, I always do hope that I'm giving my students enough of my time. And luckily though, I think I've kind of gotten a certain system working, which is, and I'll, explain it so anyone who's listening feels free to do this. I don't patent any of my ideas. Um, Well, my dissertation, I guess, will definitely will have some kind of patent, Um, academic patent. Um, But I created a Zoom writing group with a few friends and three days a week, we check in with an hour, we check in with each other for an hour. And we just look at, we have each other's faces there to hold us accountable as we write. And that's really helped me because I think with, and this is where unlimited time sounds wonderful, but I think I've started to figure out certain time management skills. And with writing, I'm very honest with my students. When they say that they're having a hard time getting started with writing, I said, well, you're having a hard time. I have a hard time getting started writing. (laughs) I think writing can be a very procrastination activity. Because we're afraid sometimes of our writing voice and that it's not going to come out exactly the way that we're thinking of all of our ideas in our head. But I think because I'm with other people now, I feel less of that burden. And I know that I have to have something written on the page because then I'm just staring at their faces, <laughs> which could have been, could be an interesting 45 minutes spent writing. But yeah, I... Um, well, I'll ask both of you, Aaron and Caroline. Oh no, now I'm flipping, I'm flipping the scripts. Is a scholar someone who has to exist in the university? Absolutely not. Okay. You know, I think it has to do with people investigating questions. That's Mm -hmm. really what it comes down to. And I think that we all 
you know, can do that in our own way. Yeah. And we don't necessarily have to be within the academy to be, you know, producing questions and seeking answers and shaping minds. Certainly. It's important to think about the work that we do as work and and there's a point where you have to be done with it. Yes. Um, And I like that you, you like jumped right in. You were like, look, unlimited time. Yeah, I guess. But, um, really what it is is it's support and it's the ability mm-hmm. like like the meeting the material needs to be able to do the work but yeah i think also sometimes when we do our own writing it can feel selfish it, and I, it's not selfish so my point is it's not selfish to work on our writing because like you said caroline it is work um and i think knowing that you've set that idea in place and it's important to be kind to ourselves and know, and I have to remind myself this because even when I watch a movie, sometimes I will have those thoughts linger in my mind, but Andrew, you could be doing this activity right now or that activity. And then I say to that uh, Freudian it or ego that's trying to pressure me, Andrew, you're watching a movie right now. You can enjoy yourself. Um, and I also have to say, I've, I've been very lucky to have networks that support me. And because we can't give hugs right now in the same way that we used to, I wish I could give virtual hugs to every network that supports me. And I know there's a lot of people in my corner and that really matters. And it's not insignificant. And a lot of my projects are with the Walt Whitman birthplace and we work so well together as a collaborative team but a lot of graduate students I've if if I can give back any advice to those who maybe entered a graduate program right now or if, if there's an organization in your and I know that Aaron mm-hmm. this will probably speak to you an organization in the field of study that you worked in or a local group that Maybe it's a local museum. Maybe it's a library. Maybe it's mm-hmm. a coffee chat with your neighbors. <laughs> um, like I think all of that is scholarship. I really do. Yeah. Um, I think conversations that I have, there's always some idea we're exchanging with each other because that's the art of communication. And that to me is scholarship. What we do in our lives is scholarship. It doesn't all have to be housed under the university system. And I think um, what I just love about your podcast and now entering my own podcast experience with um, Adam is all of the conversations you get to have with others. And you're, you're really building, this is where the bridges are being built. Because a lot of these conversations weren't happening before. And I think it's because we didn't know how to necessarily bring ourselves together from different communities. And it really excites me. It really, this is where my optimism lies right now. My optimism lies in the experiences like this happening where we don't feel as alone anymore. And that's important. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. It's, it's been, it's been a rough year. (laughs) Oh yeah. 
Oh yeah. Yeah. On the, on the coffee <laughs> scale, it's like what happened to me a few weeks ago when I cleaned my coffee pot and it crashed on the floor. That's exactly. That's a rough year. Oh, no. <laughs> oh I know it was okay though. Oh, it's okay. I <laughs> may it rest in peace, but it has been recent. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I also have been doing walking tours on Whitman because Whitman is such a. I would. I don't know if I would go so far as say meditative poet, but he is a movement poet, meaning there's so much happening within his poetry that you you can do different walking tours especially being on Long Island, I'm lucky enough to be around the corner from his birthplace. So I did a Zoom walking tour with the birthplace. Um, I've done one in Huntington Village and one in West Hills. Um, And the audience is there. And I started to learn, there are so many people right now who are eager to get up and move around, even if it's virtually. Yeah. As scholars, we need to start doing is projects that the community wants. Yes, yes, and listen to the community, right? That's that's activism one hundred and one. And I'm not I'm not an expert in activism, so I hope no one thinks that because we all we all are a piece of the puzzle. Um, there isn't just one person with the knowledge. I mean, I think that's my, I think that's my mantra. Um, is not one person holds all the cards. Um, And in order for activism and in order for education, because I do think education is a tenant of activism, um, or it can be, depending on how you approach your teaching, um, but all of different events that you engage with, you always have to listen to who's tuning in, who's a part of the community, I think if you don't have an open communication and respond to those who are weighing in, that's usually where communities go to die. I mean, I know that sounds very final, but there is definitely an optimism, which is from what I've seen on with the events that I've done during the pandemic. And I also did a queer literature talk um, with the Port Washington Library. And... What fills my soul um, and gives me the energy to continue doing academic projects that I think the most isolating ones, and I'm sure almost, I can't say everyone would agree, but I would say maybe 95% would agree, is trying to write, get an article um, accepted or writing proposals. Um, All of the work that is rewarded by the university but is it necessarily always the ones that you're so excited to be glued to do in front of your computer um i find that engaging with the public and hearing even from them and i'll always this will always stay with me even when i just say and whitman has homoerotic representation and i find out that someone listening is a high school student and they see themselves in Whitman. I mean, I'm even being brought, I'm bringing myself to tears right now. So maybe I'll, I'll try to (laughs) hold that in. 
But I think I'm being brought to tears because that's what sustains me is realizing that I'm in this game and I'm in this fight because that's the person that I'm speaking to right now is the person that I was in high school and realizing, oh, I'm being recognized right now and I'm being represented. And I never want to take away from that experience because that is why we do what we do is I think for affirmation. If you could give one piece of advice to your younger self, what would it be? Yeah. Big question. It's no, I'm going to choose when I was an eighth grader. And the reason I'm choosing when I was an eighth grader is because I knew that I was into um, the some of the boys in the class, I started to have my eyes on them. And I knew that I was interested. And I knew that I was going on my coming out journey. And I did come out as a freshman. But I want to choose my eighth grade self because having been bullied, especially it was really at, in the middle school years, Um, for being really into musical theater, especially for doing ballet lessons in Philadelphia. That was, that was the one that two bullies really took a hold of. Um, I would say to my younger self, all of the work you're doing for self-care right now, it matters. All of the characters you're identifying with in literature and that feeling that you are not having your voice heard and represented, you will be paying it forward in your future. And I know that that eighth grader would have had a big smile on his face. Well, you know how to work the waterworks in me. (laughs) (laughs) That was really powerful advice. Well, thank you. I mean, this sounds, this is very therapeutic. <laughs> I think yeah, I know who I'm going to after therapy. <laughs> it, it, you know, it started from, it started from a place of us really needing a creative outlet, but I think also this social aspect, we needed, we needed our coffee talk, you know, and mm-hmm. we, Caroline and I don't live in the same area anymore, but also we're all kind of staying home more. We're we're doing our best. We're doing our part um, mm-hmm. during COVID, and we are connecting with people. It's different now, but you know this is part of our self care. I'd say. Yeah, and it feels so good to just be in conversation with you both, um, and to know that others listening to this may share it with LGBTQ family members or friends mm-hmm. or. Or parents. You know, or that eighth grader. Oh exactly. Like that. Exactly. I feel like, and, and you know, and, and Tara discussed this too, that things changed so rapidly, mm-hmm. you know, when we were young queers, mm-hmm. right? Like it went from there being absolutely no representation to by the time you and I graduated high school and Tara too, 
um, the kids are all right was a movie. Oh yeah. People were like singing songs from rent because that yes. was also yes. a, a feature film. So like it, it yeah. was very, it was like a very different kind of queer experience as a youth. And, and then even now, I don't even know what, like, like, I, I'm sure the kids are all right because, mm. you know, queer are youth they, are tough as hell. Queer youth are tough they're as showing, hell. Yeah. And they're showing their narratives in media, which, like, I'm not going to downplay social media for the young generation and for our generation. I enjoy the social media uh, once in a while. Okay, a lot over this pandemic. But but that they can represent their own narratives in social media ways and connect with people across the world. I mean, I don't think I could have imagined that. And, um, but at the same time, when you asked me about what would you say to your younger self, I I knew that the bullies wouldn't take my spirit away. And that's why I really have such an affiliation to literature as a source of nourishment and the passion is there because my spirit was being sucked by these bullies. And the way I gained my spirit was from my musical theater family, which we were uplifting each other and from literature and from music and movies and television. And because I had such a supportive parental group, parental group, my parents were very supportive. Um, (laughs) Yeah. I'm like, what parental group? Um, (laughs) And because they really encouraged my arts and I had known, I knew queer people um, because of musical theater and that community really encourages empathy and teaches empathy um, just from the artwork that you do. I knew that my bullies were wrong. And I think because I knew my bullies were so wrong about their belief in trying to take away my spirit and knock me down I knew that there would be a time where I would be among so many other caring and empathetic people that I didn't let them take away my passions. And it got me through just having that thought in my mind during that time. I love that. And I think we're going to finish on that note that that, you know, the things that you love, your passions, they can get you through and they can even become a career. Yes. So uh, it is, it has been such a pleasure talking with you tonight, Andrew. Thank you so much for coming on and chatting with us. Yeah. Thank you so much. We've learned really so much. Well, thank you, Caroline. Thank you, Erin. Um, I'm a devoted fan of your podcast, so I, <laughs> I feel very special right now, um, and I'm fan. I'm fanning out, um, and I've been on such a journey with you both during this conversation. So, thank you just for allowing me to share my narrative. Yeah, of course. Um, 
Andrew, do you have any social media links you want to drop so that listeners can keep up with all of the amazing work you're doing and the work that your collaborators are doing and really just anything that you're interested in that you think we should be uh, keeping up on? Sure. So I do have um, a Twitter that um, I usually post a lot about my academic work. Um, So if you just search Andrew Rimby, you'll find me there. Um, I'll send out my uh, email right now. I'll say it. Um, You can email me. It's my um, academic one. It's andrew.rimby at stonybrook.edu. I love talking with anyone who has uh, passions. Um, and interests um, that lie in fields I'm investigating. And um, yeah, those are my two main sources. So email, Twitter, um, and um, you can look for the Ivory Tower Boiler Room on Spotify. Um, My work with the birthplace on, uh, oh, on the Whitman Birthplace YouTube channel that would really love to have more subscribers so they have free um they have free events so it's all up on youtube we've got some amazing episodes lined up for you guys over the next few months we're planning to talk to scholars from all different fields and backgrounds If you are a scholar beyond the tower with a story to share, please email us at scholarsbeyondthetower at gmail.com or DM us on our social media. We've purposely kept our mission pretty broad because we want to be able to talk about how we engage with our work and with the public inside, outside, and adjacent to the ivory tower. You can find us on Twitter at Beyond Tower, on Instagram at Scholars Beyond the Tower, and on Facebook as Scholars Beyond the Tower. You can find me on Twitter at Erin E underscore Becker. You can find me on Twitter at Caroline C. Progro. You can find Scholars Beyond the Tower wherever you get your podcasts. Please rate, review, and subscribe so we can reach a wider audience. Well, scholars, until next time. Stay connected and stay caffeinated. Stay caffeinated.